Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. springboarded here. I'm going to read verses 35 through 38 of John chapter number 9, and then we'll go forward from there. So bear with me. I'm trying to split between a couple different, you know, last week and this week, so we'll marry it together. Verse 35, the Bible says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out when he had found him. The him, of course, is the blind, the man who was blind, I should say. He said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Amen. I'm going to stop right there, and we'll pray. Amen. Lord Jesus, we need you tonight. God, touch our hearts and souls afresh, God, as we, Lord, consider once again, Lord Jesus, the Gospel of John. I pray, O oh Lord, minister, O oh Lord God, through your word. God, let your word find a place of permanence in our lives and in our hearts. God, we will not fail to thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you do and accomplish in the enlightenment, God, of your word. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. Everybody say amen. Amen. You may be seated. I can't go back and teach everything from two weeks ago, but just kind of hit the tops of the trees real quickly about this man that was born blind that uh, we talked about that really uh, John chapter number 9 is more than just about the physical healing of a man receiving his literal sight but it's also about a man that also uh, had a open uh, openness of his eyes if you will the opening of his eyes uh, to the Lord remember he's went through this uh, progression that he first recognized the Lord as as a man and then later he even calls him a rabbi and later he even speaks of him as a prophet and he finally comes to terms here in the closure of the chapter that he is the son of the living God to the place that he worships even the Lord Jesus Christ. And we spoke about some last week how the Lord dealt with this man very purposefully uh, because whenever he came to him, uh, you know, he made that, that clay from the, the, his own spit and the dirt of the ground and placed it on his eyes. And uh, it's not that there was really uh, much uh, said to the man. He couldn't, of course, see the Lord, but he told him to go wash in the pool. And he did, and he came back seen. And we talked about how the Lord dealt with him on the level that he had led his life. That he had led his life by feeling, uh, feeling his way through life. And that's the way in which the Lord addressed him, that first touch of the Lord upon him. So he dealt with him how he felt. And, uh, and so on and so forth. And so whenever he came back then to the Lord, and even in the closure of this chapter that I just read, he, he's never seen the Lord yet, right? He's never seen the Lord. He's felt him, but he's never seen him. And so in this moment where he tells the Lord, if you'll tell me about this son of man, you know, that I can believe on him, tell me who he is. And the Lord says, well, you've both seen him and you have, you've even heard uh, him and talked with him right now. And he understood at that moment that the person that he was seeing was the person that he had formerly felt. And that there's this whole dynamic change then of what I was talking about last week of reconciling the two, reconciling what he had felt 
with what he uh, evidently seen, you know, before it was all said and done. And so what I didn't get to last week was a story that I think, and it's not just a story, but it's a true story, that I think uh, takes this concept of reconciling what the man felt with what uh, he seen together. Uh, there was an account that I read years and years ago, now it is, of, of someone that, that was acquainted with a doctor by the name of Dr. Dufour. Uh, he, he had a successful operation on a patient of his that had been blind from birth. So very similar uh, to the man of John 9 of having been blind from birth. And so he did an operation on this man. And uh, in several cases, being blind from birth uh, results in a deficiency of the intellectual faculties of recognition. They have a hard time recognizing things even after they may uh, assume or get sight because they had led their entire life without it. And so there's sometimes a, a difficulty to be able to interact with the world around them because they have never seen. Again, they've lived their life by what they could feel. And so the case which Dr. DeFord treated was a man of, of 20, 20 years old, whose eyes had been covered from birth uh, by almost an opaque, chalky-type deposit or substance that uh, kept him from being able to see. And so he could see, he had never seen the form of anything in his lifetime. Uh, not a surface, not an outline, nothing. But after his operation, uh, th this patient was kept for a considerable amount of time in a dark room with, with, with eye bandages upon his eyes. And at last, whenever uh, the healing started to take place on his eyes, he was brought into the light. They wanted to do this very gradually. And so he, he groped around and sought for leading and behaved in much the same way that he had behaved his entire life. He, he like a blind man, you know. And the doctor almost began to doubt whether or not, uh, you know, there was some more a deep, deeper-seated blindness that this man had than just what his operation was for. And so the patient was seated uh, with his back to a window, and the doctor was in front of him, and the doctor moved his hand to and fro, back and forth, in front of him and he asked him do you see anything and he said he's, he asked and the patient said yes I see something he says I, I see something light and so this man has already started to dif differentiate between what he had known as total darkness and now some light and then the doctor asked him he said what is it and so the man began to stutter a little bit it's 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 so and so forth and that's all the doctor could get from him just this constant well it's 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 and so the doctor tried once more he put his hand before the patient uh, sometimes at rest sometimes in motion before him and he says do you see anything move do you see anything move the doctor kept trying the patient just gazed intently at his hand uh, but the most of an answer that he could give it from the man was that he saw something white that he could see you know something but he could never really put it into words what he saw and so the next day he said well that's enough for today the next day he had the man come in uh, sit down again before the doctor and the doctor showed him a watch like a, like a wristwatch and he said at once this patient said at once I see something bright I see something bright and he asked the man he said is it round or is it square and there was no answer nothing whatsoever he said, do you know what square means? You know, he's kind of pulling for straws here. Do you know what square means? And he made the shape with his hands. And likewise, he made the shape of a circle with his hands. But all the time, here is the blind man just looking eagerly at the watch. And he's just totally unable to tell whether it was round or whether it was square. 
And so, you know, enough for today, you know, he only goes so far. The next day he had the man come in again and the same question was put to him with the same failure as, as to the answer. And at length the doctor let him touch the watch. And when the man touched the watch, he instantly spoke up and said, it's round, it's a watch. And then he showed him two strips of paper, the doctor did, and he, he said, can you tell which one is longer or are they equal in length? And he couldn't tell the difference. If one was longer than the other, equal length, until he touched them. And whenever he touched them, he, was, he could tell him which was longer or not. And he, he wanted him to get to this understanding, but what he realized is this, is that since this man had lived his whole life by touch, the guy had to take what he felt and mirror and, and, and bring that together with what he saw. And it wasn't until he could take what he had felt all his life and start bringing it to with what he saw, he could start recognizing things by just sight. But first he had to take the two and put them together. And so we were talking about the blind man the last week. He lived his whole life by, by feeling. But whenever he seen Jesus and Jesus told him, I'm the man that healed you, he could bring, if you will, those two things together and, and come to a correlation that, you know what? Everything that I felt up this moment. You'll remember last week we talked about this blind man almost as being, you know, like that new convert of that person that comes into, you know, this world totally blind. And some of the first things that we ever have in our life, boy, they might not say anything except I've never felt what I like, what I felt at that service or at that place. Amen. And they have a hard time identifying the totality of everything that the Lord has for them. But when they can reconcile what they touch with what, what they see and what they feel and what they can put their arms around and, and such, then it will totally change their world for them. And so this man was living in the world of darkness, amen, and, and, and before he did anything, uh, of course, Jesus touched him, and then he was able to identify Jesus, the man that he saw with the touch that he felt, amen, and that brought revelation into his life that this is truly then the Son of God, but more importantly, uh, that the blind man would fall down and worship the Lord because this blind man, in many regards, received his sight on two levels. He received his sight literally, but he also received his sight spiritually because he come to understand that Jesus was more than just a man or a prophet or a rabbi, that he was the son of the living God. And whenever we talk about this idea that he worshipped Jesus, okay? He worshipped Jesus, according to everybody. Uh, for the most part, what they knew Jesus to be was a man. And so here is a man, just on the surface level, Worshipping a man, right? Here's a man worshipping a man. And we have historical record in the Bible, or biblical record, I should say, that any time another man attempted to worship a man, usually the man would say, hey, don't worship me, because I'm a man just like you. That is the typical thing that we find in the Scripture. After Paul and, and Barnabas were in Lystra, and Paul was instrumental in healing a man at Lystra, uh, he was so overwhelmed with what took place with the healing of his lameness that the people, even the city, the Bible says they came out with, with, with sacrifices, and they come to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. But Paul, he redirected them. The Bible says in Acts 14 and verse 15, Paul said, "In saying, sirs, why do you these things? Here he goes. He says, we also are men of like passions with you and preaching to you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all these things that are therein. So here's Paul. These men are trying to worship a man. He says, I'm not going to receive worship. He says, you need to be directing that toward God. 
Right? You need to direct that toward God. In the book of Revelation, John the Revelator, uh, in Revelation 22, uh, which so happens John the Revel- is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John that we're studying. Nonetheless, it speaks in the Scripture that he was so overwhelmed by everything he saw, experienced, and seen, and that was conveyed to him by the angel. The Bible says that he fell down before the angel to worship because of the things that he saw and he heard from the angel. And again... Here's an angel of the Lord. Don't even be worshiping me as an angel. He redirected John in in Revelation 22 and verse 9. Then saith he unto me. John saying this is what the angel said to me. See thou do it not. In other words, don't worship me. I know I'm an angel, but don't worship me. For I am thy fellow servant. You know what he's saying? He's saying I'm a servant of the Lord too. I do what he tells me to do. I'm a fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets of them which keep the sayings of this book. Look what his admonition is. Worship God. So don't be falling down worshiping you know, humanity. Don't be worshiping an angel. He's telling him worship God. However, in the fourth gospel, Jesus does not prevent this once blind man from worshiping him. Amen. Because Jesus was more than a man. Jesus was God, manifest in the flesh. And so John, even in writing the gospel, he doesn't expunge it from his record because he didn't want someone to get confused. You know, here they are worshiping a man. No, 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 no. In reality, the blind man was worshiping the God in the man. Amen. He was worshiping the God that was manifested in the flesh. Amen. He knew that God alone was to be worshipped. Jesus knew that God alone was to be worshipped. There was no controversy because he understood who Jesus was. Now, an onlooker might think, man, this is, this is heresy right here. Here's this man falling down and worshipping another man. If they had that kind of concept, they didn't have the revelation of who Jesus truly was. Amen. And so Jesus received worship Amen, because this man understood him to be God. The Greek word translated worship, it says it may also mean to kiss, to fawn, to crouch, to prostrate. However, D.A. Carson says that the verb takes on the force of to worship when the person before whom one prostrates oneself is God. In other words, it carries the idea as our English version has translated it, worship, whenever the person before them is assumed to be God. Well, this was Jesus, but it was God manifested in the flesh. They did well. <laughs> they did well. Amen. We have a good translation here. In addition, one of the proofs, if you'll remember back in Isaiah, being the prophet prophesying one of the proofs to Israel that their God had come, their God had come to save them, their God had come to redeem them. He said one of the proofs is going to be the lame walking. One of the other proofs is that the eyes of the blind are going to be open. And so Jesus coming, particularly bringing a, a, a creative act a miracle of not restoring but giving a person sight that never had it before, you know what should have been popping off in the head of every Israelite? Is that this is the sign that our God has come. This is the sign that He has arrived. The lame walking, the blind seeing, this Jesus is more than a mere man. Right? And this is the only pre-crucifix reference to worship of Jesus that we have. We have other times that Jesus, amen, that people worship, so on and so forth. But this is the only pre-crucifix reference to worship. So in reality, the humanity of Jesus wasn't being worshipped as so much as the divinity of Jesus. 
It wasn't the man aspect of him that was being worshipped. It was the God aspect of him that was being worshipped. And John knew that that was God. The once blind man knew that he was God. Jesus knew, of course, that he was God. But nonetheless, they had come to this mindset and understanding. Look now at John 9 and verse number 7. I'm going to look at these verses of Scripture. Uh, go backward just a little bit. And the Bible says, this is Jesus speaking unto the man that was born blind after he laid his hands on him with the clay that was in his hands and said unto him, this is Jesus, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, so Siloam, which is by interpretation sent, he went his way therefore and washed and came seen. The neighbors therefore and they which before had seen him that he was blind said, is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. But he said, I am he. Now look at this. There's a noticeable difference in the blind man now that he wasn't blind anymore. There's a noticeable difference. Look what the Bible says in verse number 7. He goes and washes, but there's a noticeable difference in the blind man now. The actions of his life have been deeply affected. After he washed in the pool, he returns to the area where he was known, right? Known as a beggar for that matter. He returns to the area that he was known, and the Bible says in verse 7 that he came seeing. He came seeing. But he had been, according to verse 8, he had been the beggar sitting blind. So there's a total change in his actions. He's not sitting, he's coming, he's walking. He's not begging, but he's coming seen. And his neighbors, which knew him aforetime, are now waffling back and forth among themselves about whether or not this is the same man. Is this the same guy? That used to sit, is this the same one that used to sit and beg? And so they're waffling back and forth. Some thought that indeed it was the same man. Others saying, well, he has some similarities, but he's kind of like that guy. All right? Some thought, yes, it was. Some thought, well, maybe he's somewhat like them. Someone say amen. What we've looked at here in John 9, as John often does, it doesn't just have a literal plane, but it has a spiritual plane in this story. And so much of this story just can't be taken literally, but it can also be taken and stand as an image for the lives of transition of this man from light to darkness on a spiritual level that we can mirror in our own lives. In other words, when our eyes get open up to the truth, of the Lord and His Word, it will, should, directly affect our actions. He was one that sat. He was one that begged, but now he comes seeing. The actions are affected. Beyond seeing, let's state it like this, we behave differently. Beyond seeing, we behave differently. And this, note, this change was so pronounced that when he goes back to the area that he was known in they are trying to figure out if it's the same man or not mm. some were in limbo saying yes it is others say well he's kind of like him amen i think i think perhaps one group of that really had it right i think the ones that said he's like him is probably the best the best interpretation because although you go back in the society that you once were 
after you come to know God. Yeah, you're still shielding. You still got this whatever, you know, people knowing your personality and all this stuff. But there should be certain aspects of you that says, that is Sheila, but it's kind of like Sheila. She's not quite like she used to be. Amen. He's like him. The Bible says in Colossians 3 and verse number 9, lie not to one another, seeing that ye have put off, put off, everybody say put off, put off the old man, this is important, with his deeds. With his deeds. That affects behavior. Put off the old man with his deeds. There's people that's wanting to put on a new man with the old man's deeds. Put off the old man with his deeds. Verse 10. And have put on the new man. By implication it is with some different deeds. Alright. Put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So what do we have here in Colossians? As the Apostle Paul is speaking to the church at Colossae. Amen. And he's speaking to these people that's had transformation in their life as well, right? That's went from darkness to light. Their eyes have been opened. He's saying put off the old man, right? And its deeds and put on the new man. What are you saying, Paul? I'm saying he's still a man. He's just putting off the old and putting on the new. The man that was born blind was the same man, but his condition had changed. His behavior had changed. He was blind, but now he could see. His deeds were different. In the past, he sat and he begged, but now he comes walking and seeing. All right? Look at 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. He said, therefore, and I'm, I'm going to read verse 17 and then back up and read verse 15, all right? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, everybody say, in Christ. He is... A new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now let's back up for a moment to verse number 15. The Bible says, And he died for all. Speaking of Jesus Christ. And he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, their desires, their wishes, whatever they want, they should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. This is about all those that are in Christ. When we get in Christ, we live no longer for ourselves, our own desires, what we want. We live for the one that died and rose for us. I'm asking a question today after we come to know the Lord after we come to know the Lord, who are you pleasing? Let's back up just a further a little bit. And this is real easy. You want to please who died for you and rose again for you? How many people's done that for you? How many? He, he specified unto him. He didn't really put any name in there, although we can see from the scripture who he's talking about. But he says unto him which died for them and rose again. So if we even don't have a name, you just go through your little mind right there and think whoever died for me and rose for me again and you'll only ever come up with one answer, that's Jesus Christ. And what he's telling me, when I come in Christ, I become a new creature and my deeds and behavior is different because I'm not trying to please Paul McGee now. I'm not even trying to please my family. I'm not trying to please my spouse. I'm trying to please the one who died and was rose, rose again for 
me. And so the reason we should be living for him rather than ourselves is because we are constrained. You can read further up in the same chapter, 2 Corinthians 5. We are constrained, the Bible says, by the love of Christ. Or we are arrested by the love of Christ. That love that was shown primarily, right? Greater love hath no man than this, than that he would what? Lay down his life. Right? He said we are constrained or we are arrested by the love of Christ. That love, of course, being the utmost displayed in his death. And with consideration, Christ didn't stay that way, but he got back up. The Bible tells us in verse 14, and you can go there in your own time, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, it plainly says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Now note, these are some of the meanings of that. Not only then are we constrained, not only are we held together, compelled, or preoccupied with His love, but when we would do life the way that pleases us, His love constrains us or keeps us and stops us because we're preoccupied with Him. I don't know if you understand what I just said. We are preoccupied with Him. We're not preoccupied with ourselves. Oh, that living for for God, Brother James, is hard. It doesn't suit my fancy. It's not supposed to. It's not supposed to suit your flesh. It's not supposed to suit your old man. No, you're to get so caught up in the love that was displayed on Calvary that it constrains you. It keeps you from doing what you formerly would have done because you're in awe of what He did. God, help us for you. Oh, there's peer pre- there is peer pressure. But a peer never died or rose again for you. Oh, but my job, that's fine. But your job never died and rose again for you. Oh, but my family, your family's not died and rose again for you. You can put whatever it is you want in the blank and it don't fit the qualification. We should be in all arrested by His love. And it should keep us held together and compelled and preoccupied with Him, His ways, His... We need a love for Christ that preoccupies us. That keeps us. <laughs> we need a love that leaves no room for another. <sighs> or another's influence. Huh? Or even our own influence. Or even our own desires. Just realized I had a button undone there. Whew. Try to slide that wire down the back of your shirt. Sometimes you got to button, button. If you don't remember to button it, that's what happens, folks. So there's a change. There's an absolute change of behavior and desires in this individual's life. Reminds me of the story from the Old Testament, uh, 1 Samuel chapter number 10, Old Testament. Um, Saul's went out searching for his, um, his father's donkeys. He's been on a trip. His trip kind of intersects then with the man of God, Samuel. And Samuel uh, takes him up to a place and they have sacrifices. And he begins to tell Saul these, these things, that, these events that's going to happen in his life to, to bring about ultimately him being king. But he tells him a series of events that's going to happen. And so in 1 Samuel uh, chapter number 10 and verse number 6, Samuel told Saul, and I'm turning there, Samuel told Saul 
that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him. Look at verse 6. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. So again, he speaks of different things are going to happen. You're, you're going to leave from here. You're going to meet, you're going to meet a couple of people that's uh, uh, by Rachel's uh, sepulcher, and, and then you're going to go on. You're going to find a few, three different individuals going to the temple with different things, and you're going to be able to get some bread from them, and then you're going to come and come. He's just telling him a series of events and how he should receive whenever he's among those that's going to the temple and he's given him some instruction so he told him that the spirit of the Lord would come upon him and that he would prophesy among the prophets and Samuel said unto him he said you will be turned into another man everybody say another man another man and so the very thing that Samuel had told him happened you can see this in in verses 10 through through 12 the Bible says and when they came to the hill behold a company of prophets met him the spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them and it came to pass when all that knew him before time see this is similar to the blind man all those that see him before time saw that behold he prophesied among the prophets then the people said to one another what is this that is coming into the son of Kish you know what they're saying He's not acting like he used to act. Is Saul also among the prophets? That is what they asked. And so those that observed this happening, they're, they're somewhat astonished. They knew Saul before time, right? Just like those that knew the blind man, seen him blind, sitting, begging, all that before time. All right? But now they're seeing Saul and they're questioning. They're kind of doing the, the thing with those that knew the blind man. Is that him? Oh, he's kind of like him, you know, type of scenario. They question what was happening because they're, in their mind they're thinking, who would have thought, who would have expected a son of Kish to be acting the way that Saul is acting right now? Because we know Kish. We're familiar with Saul. We're familiar with this family. We know Kish. We know Saul. And I've never seen him act like that. <laughs> I've never seen him among the prophets and I've never seen him prophesy. Amen. And so we want to know what in the world, you know, we know the type of life that he's lived up to this moment, but right now it's altogether different. He's among the prophets and he's prophesying. How in the world can this happen? Because God changed him into another man. And before the Bible says that God made him another man, in verse number nine, amen, it gives us even a further scenario that God gave him another heart because God will turn you into another man whenever he gives you another heart and whenever you have another heart and you become another man the people that used to recognize you won't recognize you totally because your actions and behavior won't be the same as they were formerly because you take and put off the old and put on the new your deeds all right your deeds have changed. And I don't know if I made mention what I'm talking about tonight, but I'm talking this evening about the difference obedience makes. Someone say amen. The difference obedience makes. Amen. So, in Samuel, as found in John, there's a key element, and that is obedience. Because, though Jesus took the clay and put it on the man's eyes, he gave this prescription Go wash. Go wash. Even with Saul, God could have given Saul another heart, turned him into another man without going among the prophets, without those different things that he stated would happen and come about and how he was to react in each of those moments. Take him, he could have did it without all that. But God told Saul 
particular things that would happen along the journey. Again, two men by Rachel's sepulcher, the, them telling him that his father's donkeys had been found, uh, the going through Bethel and, and men that were going on their way up to Bethel and receiving certain items from them. He said, you should receive those items. He did all this. Notice what he says in Samuel, 1 Samuel 10 and verse 7. He said, and let it be when these signs are come unto thee that thou do as occasion serve thee. For God is with thee. You know what Samuel was saying in, in short terms, what he's saying to Saul? He's saying you need to be obedient in each of these settings. Do as the occasion serves. For our blind man, obedience was absolutely essential to his healing. All right? Obedience was essential to his healing. Let's say it like this. Obedience was essential to his blind eyes being opened. Folks, Jesus, if he wanted to, God manifested flesh. He can do whatever he wants. Okay? You don't have to get our sign off. If he wanted to, he could have placed clay on his eyes and then removed the clay. Boom! Healed! Hallelujah! Amen! Woo! Glory! But instead, instead, he had the man walk approximately 2,080 feet from the temple area to where the pool was was a little less than half a mile, he asked a blind man to walk a little less than a half a mile. For that matter, with Jerusalem, you always went up to Jerusalem, so anytime you go away from Jerusalem, guess what? You're going down. And so they say, and from my reading, I read the different elevations of these, these two places. His change in elevation of descent from around the Temple Mount area to where the pool was, 377 feet in elevation. So he's traveling a little less than a half a mile and a 377 feet difference in elevation, and he's blind. Hmm. But Jesus said, go wash. Whew. So he's going through all this. So the blind man, he has clay on it. I mean, outside not being able to see, now he's got clay on his eyes, you know. And he's traversing down through this area. Jesus says, go wash in the pool. And so he is traversing that distance, going among that terrain. And yet the scripture plainly tells us when he went and washed, he returned seeing. Obedience was indispensable to his healing, to his open eyes. It didn't take place as he was going. I know that happened in different places in scripture. It didn't take place as he was going. He had to go. And he had to wash. Someone say amen. Everybody say obedience makes a difference. You better believe it does. The Bible says in Acts 5 and verse 31 and 32. Him, the him that it starts with in verse 31 is speaking of Jesus. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. For to give repentance to Israel and Forgiveness of sins. Verse 32. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost. Whom God hath given to them that oh. <laughs> he could just, you know, infuse you and all of that. But obedience makes a difference. He's asked of us repentance. He's asked of us to be baptized in Jesus' name. And we shall receive the gift. But the Holy Ghost comes to those whom oh, obey Him. You've heard me say it before. I say, oh, Brother McGee, you're preaching works. I'm not preaching works. 
Listen, I need someone to tell you, oh, you're repenting and being mad at Jesus' name. That's works. No, 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 no. You could repent all day long and be baptized in Jesus' name all day long. But had he not did the work that he did on Calvary, it would be not effectual. So I don't talk to me about works. It only works because he worked. All I'm doing is obeying. Oh, Brother McGee, just have faith. Well, James said faith without works is dead. In other words, faith that doesn't work is non-existent. The only faith there is is faith that works. Obedience makes a difference. Amen. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, the pool, they say, was the starting point for pilgrims who made their annual pilgrimage, their, their, their journey to Jerusalem. You read in the Psalms, the Song of Ascents, and those that were read for those 15 Psalms, that's people making their way to Jerusalem. They say the actual journey that is demarked started at the pool on the way up to Jerusalem when they would get to the Temple Mount and bring their sacrificial offerings into the Lord. You know what Jesus is saying to this blind man? He says, go back down there to the starting point. I like it. Go back down there to the starting point and your journey to God's house is going to start down there at the starting point. Your ascent is going to begin right down there. And parenthetically, in verse number 7, the scripture tells us in John, in John chapter number 9, in verse number 7, it says it parenthetically, speaking of the pool, which is by interpretation, sent. The meaning of the name of the pool being sent. Is everybody doing okay? 36, I'm going to do this. Hallelujah, amen. See, the pool that we read of in John 9 is not just something that's just newly occurring or newly built. We read of this pool that had been actually created in the days of Hezekiah back in the Old Testament scripture of the Chronicles. Hezekiah had a tunnel made from the east side of Jordan to the west side, or the, the east side of Jerusalem, rather, to the west side of Jerusalem and a little bit south. All right, because on the east side, there was a body of water, the, the Gihon Springs, that was known, that was the side that they would be typically attacked on, that side. And so as if any battle and siege, they always are going after food source, water source, and all these different things because they're trying to starve you and thirst you out, you know. He says, so I'm going to make a tunnel from the Gihon Springs that's on the east side of Jerusalem, and I'm going to make a tunnel that feeds all the way down to a pool on, on the west side and lower south of Jerusalem so that I can transport water there. So in a very literal way, he sent water from the Gihon Springs down to the pool of Siloam. Now, the water that came from the Gihon Springs, note this, they say was the only source of water for the city. That was the only source of water at the Gihon Springs. And so that from the pool came from the source. That from the pool came from the source. Hezekiah didn't want the source, again, subject to foes or subject to attack, since it existed in areas that was most likely to be attacked. Therefore, by this tunnel system, he sent waters from the Gihon Springs down to the pool. Same water. Same water, but sent to a different location. Gihon actually even comes from a Hebrew verb that means to gush forth. Same water but sent to a different location. Just follow me here. Amen. Don't want to lose anybody off the train or everybody get runned over. That was the only water source. Only water source. And it was sent to another location. 
How many times thus far in John, answer me this, has Jesus compared himself to water? How many times? How many times? Time after time. At the well, talking about the waters of purification and the pots being used. Many times he has used himself, amen, comparing himself with water. Many. Listen, there's only one water source. Only one. It was just sent, same water, to a different location. Scripture says in John that God, the only source, sent his son into the world. Same God, just sent to a different location. Oh, God, I'm really, really could get happy about this. Same God, just sent to a different location. Same water, same God. Changed location, yes. Changed form, yes. What did Jesus say over and over again? I can't do anything except the Father. Huh? Here's the thing. If Gihon Springs dried up, the pool would have been dry. But because Gihon Springs was a bursting forth, gushing, issuing water, there's still something in the pool. Jesus says, I can't do anything except the Father. Why? Because I'm the same God. I just said, if he would, if he would denounce his throne, I'd have no power here. If he, I, hallelujah. It was by the scent pool then. Note that this man was sent. He was sent to the pool that was called sent. This blind man was sent there in order to see. Folks, when we go and wash and think all over this thing, when we go and wash at the sent pool, we will come seen. When we go and we are washed by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will come forth seeing. When we are obedient at the starting point, it will manifest itself in an unmistakable difference. Amen. In our lives to everybody that knew us aforetime because hallelujah, we have been partakers of the one source. Hallelujah. Is everybody following with me here? At Passover, and I'm closing, stand with me. Look, so I planned it to stay short on the continuance side so I can include the previous before week. See, I thought of you once. Obedience is important. Obedience makes the difference. During Passover, the last, the last, the last plague to come upon Israel, or upon Egypt, rather, the death of the firstborn, right? And the prescription was given to Moses and them. You got to take a lamb, every lamb for a family. If there be not enough, even invite your neighbors. Because we don't want to waste the lamb. There's so much in the passage. We don't want to waste the lamb. He says, it's going to take the blood of the lamb. You'll take the blood and you're going to apply it to the lint on the doorpost. Listen to me. Listen to me. You could sacrifice a lamb and you could have blood in a basin as a result of the sacrificed lamb. And that never keep the deaf angel from coming over the households. It took them taking some hyssop, dipping it in the basin, and applying the blood. Blood in a basin would have never kept the deaf angel out. It was blood on the lintel on the doorpost. How did it get there? Somebody was obedient. It was applied blood. The cross on Calvary, yes, it is for whosoever will. But in the end of time, it will be for those who have been obedient to the prescription of the plan. It can't just be blood on the cross. It's got to be blood on your life. 
the difference. Obedience makes a difference. Amen. Let's bow our heads here tonight in this place. Father, I need you right now. God, I pray, oh Lord, help me, God, to walk and order my life in such a way. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.